there to say it, but you know, I'm I'm on the fence whether or not I'm going to vote this year. So, but are you on the fence with Kanye? No, I'm not voting for Kanye. A zero percent chance I vote for Kanye. Zero percent. How about yeah, this? Right? Zero percent chance I vote for Kanye, and zero percent chance I vote for Trump. About a ten percent chance I vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, the choices between voting for Joe are just watching Netflix, right? Yeah, exactly. I like Netflix. Netflix is good. <laughs> I mean, as you said, we're not even sure how we're going to vote this year. Thing is, I'm in Louisiana, so Trump's going to win. So it makes it my choice, to be honest, a little easy. I mean, do you think it's a tight election? Do you think that the Democrats that are feeling themselves about the big poll lead are actually right? Um, I saw the article you sent me earlier, and I think, I mean, I think he's looking at it the wrong way. He's saying it more like, we need to keep our team like riled up. We got to make sure they don't lose momentum. I don't think that's the real point. I, don't, I think people that are going to vote and not, don't like Trump, I think he's a constant reminder. Like, don't worry, he's his own you know, bad advertisement. Um, but I, I mean, I think Trump's going to win. If you want to hear my opinion on that, I'll say it. I, I, but why do you think Trump's going to win? So you think the polls are all wrong? This whole idea that we're ahead in the battleground states is actually false? Yeah, well, we know polling's bad. Um, we know part of the reason polling's bad is a lot of people, particularly white men and women, don't like saying that they're voting for Trump. So you'll ask them, and they just won't. They'll lie to you. So there's that. Um, yeah, and I think if it really comes down to it, I don't think he has any intention of losing. I think he'll cheat. I mean, I think that, that raises one of their big questions, right? I mean, I think it's something we talked about a little bit in our earlier episodes, but this question of what kind of moment is it that we're in right now with Black Lives Matter? I mean, we can kind of all agree that Kanye and the Kardashians are classic influencers, right? So, I mean, of course they got paid. I don't think an influencer does anything, right? They don't make any big public statements unless they receive a check in the mail. And they have a whole corporation set up to facilitate the receivings of checks in the mail. So we don't know where it came from, but maybe he got paid by Elon Musk. Uh, maybe he got paid by someone else. I mean, he said Jared, so I mean, maybe he just got paid by Jared. I mean, yeah, maybe I mean, it's not mysterious. Yeah, I don't think Kanye really like uh, <laughs> obfuscates this stuff too much. He's like, Jared told me, gave me some money, so I did it straight up. I don't know. But that raises the other question of like, I mean, we're seeing all these statues coming down around the country, right? I just read today that they're closing down part of Fifth Avenue again and painting Black Lives Matter on the uh, city streets. You know, they did it in D.C. They've done it all across the country. They're doing that and to mess with it. Trump, though, because isn't Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue? Yeah, yeah, Trump Tower's on Fifth Avenue. Yeah. And, and Fifth Avenue is a major shopping district, right, which has been hurting. And so they know people will come out. Like, my wife has been like, Alden, we got to drive down downtown D.C. because we got to go see the Black Lives Matter thing. But so they know just... it's a good branding. But that's just show, right? I mean, it's just it's just an emblem. It's not actually going to change any... Like, they need some legislature to change the way policing's done in New York. They need legislation to change the way policing's done in D.C. D.C. probably needs to try to work for statehood, frankly, and bring up that whole conversation. There's a few... You see what I'm saying? Like, I think these things are more important than scribbling some words in yellow on the street, which I like. Like, I'm all for it. But I don't know. It does beg the question that... uh. You know, when I talk to some of my older uh, black friends, they, they, they didn't want to say Black Lives Matter because they felt it was just a brand. And this kind of makes it feel, once again, like a brand. Like, if they're divorcing the brand from the movement, right? And they're just going to give us support the brand, right? So, I don't know if I really like it. And, and maybe the actual movement, this will be enough to quell the protests, which it seems to mostly have because people optimistic if you see the polls black people are optimistic that there will be change but uh, i'm not one of those people honestly because uh, uh, i don't see it 
I see there's city councils pass resolutions to paint the streets, but not to address the actual issues of policing. For the most part, there, there's been some things that have been done, but for the most part, there hasn't. I mean, there have been some small things already. It's a, it's a process, right? I mean, I was watching this interview with uh, Keith Ellison the other day uh, with Hassan Minhaj, and he was, uh, Minhaj, and he was saying, um, well, Hassan just came out and asked him, he was like, Keith, you know, it's a big deal that you as the state, uh, the state attorney general are managing the case against the officers uh, who killed George Floyd. But he was like, at the end of the day, right, in Minnesota history, no white police officer has ever been convicted. Uh, for the murder of a black man or a black person. And there have been some really high-profile cases of police killings on film. Qualified immunity is very broad and it's very difficult to get around. Until they get rid of qualified immunity, it's going to be very, very, very difficult to prosecute most police unless you have a major like political moment. Like most, even the police that you, today that you see prosecuted, it's either because they did something so blatant that they couldn't do anything about it. But as we know, you can still get off even with video evidence, with clear video evidence, right? So that's clearly not the standard. It tends to be politics. Like if the politics so gr- become so great that frankly the DA or the mayor feel like they're going to lose their job if it's close to an election year, then you see action. And if it's not, then you don't see action. No, definitely. I mean, Keith Ellison was even saying that in uh, Minnesota, they have something called the obligation to protect. And so police officers, like your felt the reason that they could try the other police officers as well was because the other police officers are actually obliged to try to save life, to try to save a life. And so they were obliged to intervene. But Keith was pretty honest. He was like, you know, I don't know if even that's going to be enough when it goes to the grand jury. Well, of course not, because if you speak to the average person about what rights they think the police should have, you might open your eyes pretty wide, especially you speak to some of my, when I spoke to some of my suburban white friends, I'll tell you what he told me. They told me that the threat of violence in order for there to be proper functioning of the state, the threat of violence must be pervasive and immediate, not eventual, was the language I was told. And I was like, holy crap, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> you know? And he was like, I read Max Weber. I was like, I don't think you read all of it. But that, that's, that, that, that's sad. Um, I, know, I feel like when people start saying, I read Max Weber, it's right up there when they're like, you know, as Hegel said. And you're like, hmm. Hmm. Did you really read Hegel? Yeah, I don't think you finished it, player. But uh, <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. But people seem to have these ideas that police, you know, law and order. Trump's a law and order candidate. You know, it's one of the most popular shows on TV, Law and Order. There's, it's been drilled into the American psyche that we need the police to maintain the, the state of the streets. You know, broken windows theory that's been proven false time and time again by almost... Every economist, like, doing his, you know, doing a degree. But the, the, cons- the, the perception persists, nonetheless. So you think at the end of the day, all we might get is some diversity training. You know, we see all these books about anti-racism racing to the top of the New York Times bestsellers but, list. Well, like you were saying, you were saying Keith, even Keith Ellison and his own son can't agree on it, right? His, his son who works on, what, city council, I believe? His city council in Minneapolis, yeah. He said... I mean, the city council of Minneapolis unanimously came forward and passed a resolution, which I think was then turned down by the mayor, saying that they wanted to abolish the, the Minneapolis Police Department. Correct. But Keith is like, look, we can't really abolish the police. I mean, he says that maybe we could re- redirect funding. I mean, I think Keith, Keith, I think we would all agree, is a staunch progressive member of the Democratic Party, particularly at the kind of national level. Oh, definitely. Um, first black, first black uh, Muslim congressman. 
And his seat is now held by Ilhan Omar, who I feel like is one of the most fire about that life uh, Congress people in, in the country. American treasure. I love her. <laughs> but Keith was being very, I think, I think Keith was being very uh, frank on this uh, interview of Hasan Minhaj. Uh, and he was like, look, basically he was kind of saying most people won't accept the idea that there's no one, that there's not a police force for them to call. But that's ignorant. Um, but that's ignorant. It's like it's such a sound like Michael Jackson. That's ignorant. Um, but <laughs> it really is though, because the point is not that there won't be anyone to do these things. Is that they're going to break up the structure of the current police forces, right? Which are these fraternal organizations, which is already problematic in and of itself, right? And then replace them with something else. It's not that there won't be anything. It's that one, the structure of the organization, especially oversight, is terrible. And that two, they just do too much stuff. We have police doing things they're not supposed to be doing. And so they get overwhelmed and they end up in situations where they're walking around with guns on their hips when they probably don't need to be in that situation with a gun. Like, right? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I think you're right. And I think Keith did bring this up. I mean, he, to his credit, he brings up this question. He's like, look, I might not be ready to call myself an abolitionist yet, which to bring back to our question of branding, I guess, we're in this moment where there are all these kind of key terms, which I'm really happy are gaining traction, but which perhaps are, uh, you know, also become their own points of fissure. And he said that, uh, but I do believe that we're directing way too much money at both the police in this country and the military abroad. But that's the real question that we're having, right? So as we know, we, we have a case study for this. So. Camden, as you know, they disbanded their police force. Camden had one of the worst murder rates in the country. You ever been there, ever stopped there accidentally? I did before one time when I was driving up to the Northeast and I got back, look, I'm from New Orleans, man. And I got back in my, I got back in the state so fast. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? Why did I stop here? This is a scary ass place. Um, and they disbanded the, the police and they found that their crime went down. Violent crime, non-violent crime, all crime. Right? Why? Because police have incentives to create crime to some extent. And their presence causes anxiety, which also creates crime. Or at least an incentive to prosecute things that may or may not be crimes, or crimes in some area and not crime in other areas as well. So, I mean, I think that's a, an, an important undercurrent to this conversation, you know? I mean, sometimes my wife laughs at me, but I'll never... I mean, I was living in, I guess, what we might call authoritarian Dubai, and I was feeling so relaxed. And you're kind of like, you know, you read every day and you're like, okay, expat was uh, expelled from the country for saying something whack on Facebook. And so, you know, you should be tense, right? But I was like, look, I haven't seen a fool with a gun in like two months. And I've been living in D.C. and there's like 40 different police forces. Sometimes I would go to CrossFit and you're like, why is everybody carrying a semi-automatic in here? Yeah, you and I actually disagree on this one, but I, I get your point. Like you're, you're more open to the idea of the panopticon. Like, you'd rather them just be watching you all the time and have the pervasive fear of, of God, frankly. God the machine that can always see you and then catch you, right? The, the eventual fear. But I guess this is the heart of the debate. I'm saying that uh, I don't believe that the, the fear of violence needs to be immediate, but maybe I do. Because I mean, I guess in Dubai, I never felt like I was going to get shot by accident. Like, like I never had that. I mean, sure. I think right, there's a def, possibility it definitely that, won't be an accident. that somebody... I'll tell you that. Yeah. I felt 100% clear that it wasn't going to be an accident. Whereas sometimes in the U.S. I have this feeling that I could just get shot, right? It's not like there was any plan. It's not like I'm afraid that, like, 
I always think when I think about getting shot in the U.S., it's like I'm gonna be driving my car. Uh, me and some officer of the peace are gonna have a a minor dispute, and then we get popped off. Or when I used to be in when I used to be in like uh, Arlington or like in D.C., it would be even more strange, right? You'd just be like in a Starbucks trying to do some stuff on your computer, I'm feeling pretty relaxed, drinking my mocha latte, whatever. And then you would look up and you'd be like, there's seven people in here uh, carrying firearms. Yeah, it's like, like, what if something random happened? It was like that when I was in Texas, too. Like, just everyone has a gun. It's like, wow. Yeah. You're like, this is, you're like, I could just be killed on the random. Which I guess is the pervasive fear I have in the U.S. That, like, it's not like I'm afraid that, like, somebody at the ministry of whatever, whatever, has, like, thought about Alden and is like, you know, Alden is a problem. We need to remove him. Uh, my wife is more like that, you know, like, but there could be a problem or something like that. But I was like, in Dubai, if the worst thing they're going to do to me is send me back home, I mean, yeah, I could survive that. I mean, that might also be my own privileged status of being able to be a black expat, but, uh, but that's a whole nother issue. Yeah. But, you know what I mean? Like, I felt like that was the, the scary thing I always, I feel about the U.S. I mean, but this gets me to this, this question of the panopticon. I mean, this gets me to this other uh, topic that I know we wanted to raise, which is... I know we have some disputes about whether or not Panopticon technology is sort of built in to the kind of social media world that we're living in, this current place of technology. And also, if we don't, I think one of the most troubling legacies that we're seeing in Trump right now, and that I, I suspect will be carried over into a Joe Biden presidency as well, is we're beginning to see, the, I, th- I think we've seen decisively the collapse of a globalization story that we had in the early 21st century, right? That, that technology wanted to be free and open, that, you know, as societies got close, more closely integrated, they were going to become more democratic, that trade was good for everyone. I don't think technology being free and open was ever really part of this deal. But aside from that, I, I tend to agree. <laughs> I, think, I think part of the, the whole concept... Didn't we re- say the internet wanted to be free? Yeah, but I think part of information the, wanted to be free. Yeah, sure, but I think the concept was free for whom? I thought I think we had the idea that we'd be able to outsource part of the production, right? And they wouldn't be able to catch up and learn it. I think there was a, a little bit of hubris there. They were like, "We invented this stuff. No one else is going to be able to, rep- to replicate it." Or more importantly, if they do replicate it, replicating something is not as good as quote unquote inventing it, as if we like we're doing something that's that unique. And that special. And we're finding out nowadays that, huh, maybe they can do it. And maybe it wasn't that special at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, I, I think by like, like in 2010 or so, you know, when we were still feeling ourselves, I remember talking to my friend who was like now a senior product person in, uh, in technology at one of the big firms. And he was like, look, we never have to worry about the Chinese. And I was like, why? And he was like, because only open societies can innovate. And so I think the, the kind of uh, axiomatic principle was that either so-called authoritarian societies would become like us, or they would just always fall behind. And either way, it's a win-win, right? If they do catch up, it's because they've become just like us. Yeah, and but if I they think don't catch up, it's, you know, Ameri- don't catch up. Americans have this false uh, memory of what they've innovated, though, I think is a lot of it, right? Like, we like to call a lot of products innovative that we actually didn't innovate, that are actually copies. Um, and we're seeing now this play out on us, like the same scam that we ran on other people, like where we pretended we invented the car or the light bulb, and we didn't, right? And we just tweaked it and sold it in a different fashion, and they're doing the same thing. I mean, TikTok is almost literally, to bring it back full circle, almost exactly what Vine was. Like, there's no real difference. 
I mean, didn't they buy an American company musically and just re- and just they just got it going? Yeah, because it's all about marketing, right? It's all about the moment. It's all about marketing um, and momentum in the tech world. And there's room actually for a number of players is, I guess, the big thing. The main concern the U.S. has to have now, though, and we've talked about this a bit, is when it comes to hardware manufacturing. And I think that's why you're seeing this big fight over Huawei, right? And whether or not, that's actually a multi-layered fight, but whether or not we're gonna let them produce devices and more importantly, towers uh, in, in the United States. Um, and what's the risk they're letting them do this? Um, this is actually one of those times I personally, with my background, you know, being a security engineer, uh, get very, very nationalistic. And I'm like, we definitely should not let Huawei build these things. But I also think that we should probably the U.S. government should probably build them. Like, I think probably communication should be nationalized, right? I think they're that, I think they're utility. I think it's that important that people can access them. And I think the government just has more capability. They have the ability to roll this out. I mean, I think they could do it through privatized subcontracts and stuff like that too. I'm not against that by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I think that we do need the actual towers to be owned by the government. I think it's very important that they're not independent. I mean, I think this gets into a, a really interesting question and a really big fight that I think is at the heart of what uh, the conflict that we're having with the Chinese, right? Which is, I think as long as we could believe in globalization, which I think for the U.S. in particular was always a slippery concept, right? The, the slipperiness between globalization as open societies, open markets, and U.S. predominance, I think was never fully resolved, right? I mean, these two concepts related easily to each other because we could kind of assume that they would go together. But the Chinese have raised this question, and it's an interesting thing that they did in the 90s, right, where they basically said the state, even within a capitalist society, the state has a different role to play, right? That the state will create national champions, the state will direct investments, the state will have um, industrial policy, which I think for many Americans, particularly those like on the, on the right, but many Americans, both parties, we believe that one of the reasons the Soviet Union collapsed is because they did planning. And so the persistence of what we used to call SOEs, state-owned enterprises, or coordination with multinationals. I call that the great lie. We on the left call that the great lie, by the way, but keep going. <laughs> and so I think, I think many Americans believe, many Americans who found themselves in positions of power believed what you're calling the great lie, or what we might more charitably call the lessons learned from the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, they, so they thought this was also a big white elephant, right? I mean, you know, the idea has always been, look, the Chinese, they have this massive white elephant. The state plays far too large a role in the Chinese economy. They have all this unproductive investment and in infrastructure, which some of that might be true. But uh, the idea was that this was going to be crippling, right? This was going to also mean that they couldn't keep up. But what you're saying is, is actually very interesting because... The story that I've been reading on our side is that we still don't really want to invest or give subsidies for the production of American hardware that can compete with Huawei, right? We don't really want to produce 5G hardware. It's very confusing. I don't understand why. It's like it's very, 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 very difficult to understand why we want to do to be honest. So I've been seeing reports that we, we have this new strategy, which is that maybe we can use old hardware and simply design new software to replicate the feeling of 5G. The empire is falling. So, so as a as a computer science engineer, uh, you don't you don't have much faith in the software solution to get around the the five G hardware problem. Five G is so fast and the throughput's so good that it's society changing. 
it's it's going to make it to where you don't need wires for almost for like all this stuff and data transmission and the technology capabilities of it or it, it you know it's another black swan you don't know what exactly it's it's going to be society transforming it really will and so the fact so you think we're at a moment like the internet Oh yeah, it's gonna it's gonna change the meaning of what the internet is gonna be. It's gonna be the internet from Back to the Future, right? It's gonna be the actual like that the sky like the full thing, right? And it's and that's why I think you're seeing so much, uh, frankly, Chinese and Russian propaganda to make Americans and British afraid of 5G. You know, people are saying 5G makes you like kills you and makes you retarded and gives you COVID nineteen and all this other ridiculousness. And no, it's actually really good for you. And they found out that for whatever reason, they can whisper this nonsense in people's ear and they'll re repeat it. And now, like I've, I've spoken to some very bright people and like when I met with them, they were like, so, uh, you know, what do you think of 5G? And I'm like, more, I would like for it to come here faster. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. So what do you think 5G will be able to do? Like what, what, how will 5G change a normal person's life? Well, I mean, it's like 20 times faster than 4G, right? So just think about that. So just at the base level, you're not gonna have any stuttering. All the video and everything can be HD. You'll be able to download everything like instantly, right? So access to data like this, web pages, super rich. Uh, it's gonna definitely transform web technology. You're gonna see VR take off in a way that you, did, you never saw it before. Your AR take off in ways you've never seen it before. For learning, you're gonna have VR learning. It's gonna, it's gonna be crazy, man. It really is. Nowadays, one of the main reasons we can't do a lot of that stuff is just too much data. It's too hard to send it, you know? This changes all that. So you think the great acceleration is here? I mean, one of the big debates, at least in economic history over the last few years, has been like, you know, why did the internet not live up to its promise? Why, there's been this big argument that, you know, the changes from sort of like the late 70s through to the early 21st century weren't able to replicate the kind of changes of the early late 19th, early 20th century, the industrial, you know, that that second industrial revolution that gave us electricity, you know, the car, the airplane. But you think we just, we're actually still in the acceleration phase, right? Well, no, the, we're, we're actually- The technology the, is coming. We're actually in one of the biggest acceleration phase in the history of the world. That's actually the, the that's what Andrew Yang kept trying to warn us about, frankly. <laughs> I keep trying to tell everyone Andrew Yang came back from the future and he's trying to warn us about Skynet. And like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, legit. Like, he's trying to warn us about Skynet. He's like, it's it's coming. Like, society's changing. The rate of innovation due to technology is accelerating very, 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 very quickly. Um, and then at some point, probably in our lifetime or right after the end of it, it might even accelerate to levels we've never seen before, depending on, and, and 5G is probably gonna make that happen faster. 5G compared, combined with AI, I guess that's the other part of this, right? And machine learning is just gonna ch change the way you do simple things. You can actually have that like, that digital assistant follow you around, like real time, and like actually help you out in, in day to day. Like you kind of have it now with Google, but this is gonna change it. But I guess if you have 5G, VA, VR, AR, and AI combined, right? Like the digital assistant could actually be like from the movies, right? Like a human. Correct. Like it could it could be like the experience of having a friend. Yes, and it could actually process the environment around you in a kind of real-time fashion and send it back. And see what I'm saying? It really is society change. It'd be very impressive. So in your opinion then, and this is, I, I hate giving uh, 45 any type of credit, but the, the reorientation that 45 launched, you know, it's, I guess you could say reorientation away from the war on terror, reorientation away from the, the globalization narrative, 
to defining China as our peer strategic competitor and, you know, sort of putting it around the question of AI, the question of technological nationalism, the greater involvement of national security in the technology sector. Do you think these were important uh, reorientations for American policy? I think they actually were necessary. That's, that's the funny thing about Trump. Like they say, even a stop clock gets the right time twice a day. Occasionally he like, as we saw in the 2016 campaign, he says some good things. Occasionally he's right. However, this is a half measure. So despite the fact that he's attacking China, he's like you're saying, he's not helping American businesses take the leap. Like you can't just stop them. You have to build your own. And so the lack of American industrial policy, which frankly, I think the GOP is just not open to. They have too many libertarians and their, their corporate first vision, right? Independence, their vision of liberty doesn't allow them in the current environment to, you know, even consider it. But I think without actually pursuing proper industrial policy, it's a fool's errand. It's ridiculous. Because then we're just going to end up with nothing. And now we're just going to fall behind. So, so like, if, if you wanted to, if they were going to do, like, a, you know, a moonshot, as they say, for 5G, that would be super smart. And that's what he should do. Um, why he's not doing it, I don't know. But don't we have the 5G technology? I mean, isn't a lot of the technology actually developed in the United States, the technology that underlies Huawei? Sure, but someone someone has to get the contract to do it and the okay to do it. So either he has to say, we're going to just do this federal drive and we're going to, you know, cut up the bandwidth right now. And here we're going to, you know, like they normally do and do a bandwidth sell off. Or maybe they say this time, this is not a good idea. We think this time we should just nationalize it. We're going to run it and we'll give you guys uh, the ability to build it, you know, give the contracts you guys to build it, but not to operate it. I, I don't know if maybe they're just still debating that. I don't think that's really what's going on. It seems like they're stuck stuck in limbo right now. I mean, I think ideologically they believe the free market should take the lead, right? The idea is that government doesn't really have a role in directing the market. But at the same time, they seem to be really caught up on this idea of expanding the national security state. So like, you know, they've been expanding things like CFUS, uh and the idea that there should be more licensing, you know, more regulation of, for instance, Chinese and foreign investment in high tech. We're seeing them uh, increasingly try to regulate the role of uh, international students in subjects like engineering, maths, and sciences. I mean, what was it Tom Cotton said? He's like, if some Chinese students want to come to America, maybe they should study uh, the Founding Fathers. Well, They should read the Federalist Paper. They be, shouldn't do any math. To be fair, as someone that does work in tech, Working in tech can make you a little nationalistic because part of the reason that they do like foreign students in tech is because they pay them a lot less money. I just have to be honest with you. Um, it's not that they're that much better, if that they're better at all. There's talent in America. There's plenty of talent. It just, if someone is willing to come here and work for 80000 to 120000 whereas the American knows that his buddy down the street's making two seventy-five, you know, it's just a different negotiating thing. And if the guy's almost as good, they're going to go with the foreign person every time. Well, Bill Gates said that software engineers are paid too much money. Yeah, he's the second richest man in the world, right? I mean, he might be the richest because I feel like he has that tax dodge called the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, but he doesn't have the Amazon money. That's the thing. I mean, we don't know. It's all very murky. I feel like him and uh, Buffett are the, are the real mob. But but yeah, I mean, what I, I guess what I'm trying to argue or what I'm... I think what I'm confused about is that we seem to be doing this kind of intervention, right? But at the same time, we seem to be saying we want to have the free market, too. So it's weird, right? Like, if you're going to intervene that much, why not simply admit that you want to create national champion? Well, because 
we, we live in a very corporatist society right now, for one. Both parties are definitely run by corporate interests, right? And now we, we see this different thing that we, we spoke about earlier, that you have these weird companies coming out like SpaceX, right? That's like Elon Musk's like space outfit, right? Like, you know, he was doing Tesla really so now he can get into space, but like he kind of wants to take over NASA and now he's making the rockets, but he can't really buy NASA, but he kind of is, like he's backdooring it because he's making NASA kind of like a subsidiary of his own company in its own way, right? And like Elon Musk is, I mean, sorry, uh, Jeff Bezos is probably the only reason that the post office is still open because of Amazon. <laughs> so like, what, what, is, what does this mean? I'm really nervous. I mean, I think some people, I'm really nervous. I think we're in this weird moment in the US where, you know, we had a really strong technological run and we had a great, um, we've had so much dominance for so long both socially, culturally, economically. In the grand scheme of things, it just, wasn't really that long, though, to be honest. We just have short memories. Yeah, maybe we have short memories. Maybe since the Second World War, right? We, got, we haven't really we had a little hype change. since the Second World War, you know? Yeah, and definitely with the kind of decay and then collapse of the Soviet Union beginning in the 80s, we've really been feeling ourselves. Oh, yeah. And, and I think you're right, right? We're at this moment where things like 5G are finally coming. There are definitely things that we can adapt to, but they require a bit of a push. And we have a peer competitor in the Chinese who seem to be arguing that they can be both capitalists and have a state political structure that maintains autonomy from capital. Whereas in our system, we're trying to run the opposite direction, which is we're trying to make our government increasingly the servant of major corporate interests. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I like to say that was probably Marx's greatest failing in his writing, right? Is I think he he didn't put enough stress on the fact that maybe fascism is a natural outgrowth of capitalism. Um, he, he thought it was more of a passing phase that didn't necessarily always happen, but we're seeing now, just as students of history, that maybe just in a pure, in a capitalist society, but due to accumulation of wealth, like economic fascism is, is almost a fait accompli. Like you're going to arrive there unless you go the explicit socialist route. There's almost no other way about it. Yeah, I think there's some variations, right? And I think depending on whether or not you're feeling positive about the Chinese, right, you could call them market socialism, or maybe you could call them some kind of variation on a fascist state. Or, and then in the US, I guess you have this question, I think the choice between us, right, is whether or not we have a social democracy, whether or not we create um, a fascist state, or whether or not we settle. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have wanted to kind of settle on an oligarchy. And, and the problem with an oligarchy is whether or not we can, I think it's not clear that we can run industrial policy under an oligarchy. And so it's not clear to me that, I think it, it naturally tends towards driving um, financialization, kind of market trading, kind of merchant economy. Because I think one of the problems with industrial production is that it requires long-term investment. Like what you're saying, if we want to make the leap to 5G, at some level you need kind of a coordinated effort to green light this, this push, right? I mean, that would be the most efficient way to do it. I think, you still need a state that invests. I think the bigger problem, that's, that's true on the operational side, right? Logistically, that's true. But I think the bigger problem, frankly, is that capital seeks the cheapest and easiest way to do things. I think that's, that's really all boils down to. And so if it's something this big, everyone's just waiting. No one wants to be the first first one to move. And I think that's where we suffer in some ways 
in comparison with the Chinese Communist Party, right? I think the Chinese Communist Party, from what I... I'm no expert in China, so I don't want to say anything completely stupid. But I think the Chinese Communist Party, to the extent that it still exists as a corporate entity, actually does believe the kind of story of underdevelopment, right? They do believe that their their job has been to transform China from an underdeveloped country into a developed country. I mean, the methods, the means of doing it, well, and well, the ways in which their and, strategies and, might be. And iffy. I'm going to say something very controversial now, but I, I think it's just true, patently true. China cares more currently than the United States about raising the living standard of their citizens. The United States does not give two shits about that anymore. We are actually the first generation in the in the modern era to have a lower standard of living than our parents' generation. You realize that, right? Um, that's crazy. <laughs> like, that's, yeah, I think. And and when we and we speak to the older generation, right? They don't understand and they don't seem to care, which is very very strong sign to me that we're in a society in decline because they don't seem to understand the advantages they had and they have no desire to extend those advantages to the next generation. I mean, look at what happened in the DNC, right? This this primary season that I guess technically isn't over, but I mean, it is, right? Tremendous. Yeah, I think the tre- primary, tremen- I think the primary is over. Tremen- <laughs> tremendous amounts of money are being spent. I mean, even just in that Kentucky Senate primary, right? You had one candidate that spent what was it, $31 million versus someone else that spent 700000 And the guy, that, the progressive that spent 700000 lost by 10,000 votes in a statewide election, right? The, the center has shown, capital has shown that it's willing to expend tremendous amounts of money in order to avoid progressive reform. Well, I think in the U.S., I think this is one of the problems, right? I mean, po- poverty is very lucrative. And I think ideologically, the U.S. believes that it's a rich society. And so there's no ideological impetus, it seems, coming, or only now. I think this has been a change maybe since, you know, you could say of the last few years, maybe the last decade, we've had the rise of this inequality discourse and this kind of discovery uh, recently that we, might be a, that we might have poverty, or systemic poverty, right? Like poverty that we should actually be worried about. I mean, we always knew we had a few poor people, but I don't think we were... Well, no, uh, you, know, you know what it really is, though, honestly? I think the problem is that we associated poverty with urbanity and, frankly, minorities. And now poverty's hit the suburbs and poverty's hit the rural areas, too. So now everyone's seeing what poverty is. You know, all these little towns, I mean, towns dying. We don't have any job except being a police or, or a post office worker. And we don't even really have a post office anymore. The post office might might disband this summer. That might be why Jeff Bezos doesn't have to say so much. He's like, I'm about to get the post office. It's about to be mine, bitches. Yeah, I mean, Amazon already drops off. Like, they have their own little cars and you know around here. Yeah, they have their own little cars. They got their own little Amazon stations. He might make Con- he might have Kanye rebrand the post office. Call it the we the Kanye office, the Yeezus office. Let Kanye design some uh, some new outfits for the post. Oh, that yeah. would be amazing. I'd actually be so Kanye down with that. Some, Can you imagine post, some, postal, some postal workers wearing the Kanye outfit? I'm like, what the heck? Yeah, you know that's happening. You know that's happening. I mean, but but just to follow up on the point you're making, I mean, when I was just hired at UCLA, I mean, one of the things I think they brought somebody like me in. One of the reasons they were able willing to cross list with African American studies in the International Development Studies program, it's already its title is International Development Studies, right? Development for us is something that we do to other countries, right? There's a lot of other countries that I think our idea was that would need to be developed. Development is not, is not something that happens inside the United States. But one of the big innovations that we're making this year 
is we're like, oh, maybe we face some developmental challenge at home. But this is only an idea that's arisen in the last year or two, right? This idea that we could even talk about the questions of development as internal to the United States. Yeah, I agree. I mean, America also just got lucky both during the Industrial Revolution where we had some of the big barons just get together and do things for us and, and build the railroad, you know, and stuff without without too... And we also had Britain, right? I mean, we had all this British money coming in. Correct. I mean, we, we maybe did something similar to the Chinese, right? We put all this American money to develop China. Oh, certainly. But But no, I think you're right. I mean, I think this is the question. I think this is the main question right now is like... Uh, can the U.S. reform? Well, and there also seems to be, and you know why I think so, I think it's because of the way we've changed military you know, participation. Um, maybe we should talk about this even in more depth later. Um, but also we ignore how much our second technological revolution, the computing revolution, was a direct result of military technology. And there's actually no, that exchange between military technology and civilian consumable products is almost gone in America now. Like, it's not filtering down, funny enough. Well, that's one of the big... Uh, I mean, maybe that was actually something really smart that Jeff Bezos said not that long ago, right? He went to the Pentagon, and I mean, one of the reasons that he got so mad about losing this cloud computing contract, right, is that he, he basically said, look, if we don't reform and we don't make the link between military technology and civilian technology closer again, we're not going to be able to keep up. We're definitely going to fall behind, and I and I think it's something we should take up, uh, talk about. I guess next episode as well. Like bring back the draft, does India, yeah, bring back the draft, and but fix it. What would it What would it mean to to? I know there's a big pushback in Silicon Valley against doing this kind of work, but you know the question about whether or not Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft. I mean, what should their relationship be with the security state? And what should the relationship of the security state be with these companies? And if we admit that a lot of the technology for these companies does come with government involvement, what are their obligations to us, the people? Correct. And, and do we get a share of it? Do we get a say in it? Do we at least get someone to sit, sit on the board to say something about it at that point or not? I mean, one thing you have to give the Chinese is that I think, I think one of the reasons they're so confused about some of the discourses that come out of the U.S., is there like, the data doesn't belong to Facebook. The data belongs to China. And I think there are a lot of problems with maybe the question of what it means for the data to belong to China. But they're like, the data belonging to Facebook is an absurd concept. It was very conflicting to me because I like the concept of it belonging to China more than I like the concept of it belonging to Facebook. But I obviously think the data belongs to the individual. So I think each individual mm. owns their own data. So there's, you know, it's just like a whole, I guess those are three mm. main positions that people can take, though. Right. And I think the EU, interestingly, is taking this position about or trying to figure out a way to take a position about the data belonging to the individual. But I think it's something we should talk about in the next episode, this question about whether or not we see the emergence of different uh, tech strategies. You know, can there be an Indian tech strategy? Do we see them becoming a player? Uh, Where's China going? And should they? Uh, Like, is, is it important to national security? I guess that's the other big question. Like, is... Is this not just something that they will do, but something they must do in the new tech- technological environment we live in? I guess the wild question, the wild card question is, is there even a place for Africa in this discussion? Are black Americans, I mean, do we have any interest in this at all? Or is it like, are we just destined to be bystanders? That's a good question. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, so we'll take up a lot of these issues when we come back. All right, it's been nice talking. See you next time. See you next time.